Welcome to Calvary Chapel The Rock's podcast. We pick up this evening in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, where King Ahab's life comes crashing down around him, and it all starts so subtly with the single sin of coveting. Listen now as Pastor Ross walks us through the intriguing incident at Naboth's vineyard. 1 Kings chapter 21, we're nearing the end of the road for 1 Kings, and guess which book comes next? You guys are on it tonight. Second Kings, very good. All right, as you make your way to chapter 21, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your living word. Lord, we know that your word has its origin in heaven and not here on earth. It is not coming from any man, but the Holy Spirit within holy men uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit writing God-breathed words that bring us life. And so we want to be open to that tonight. You've got something. You've got a reason. You've guided footsteps here. Before the planet was spinning, you saw this day, and you determined who would be here. All of us, Lord, uh, to hear this word. So prepare our hearts and open our eyes, and we're willing, Lord. Uh, Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A rich businessman was visiting the Caribbean, kind of in the outskirts. He kind of got off the uh, beaten path there to some rural villages, and uh, he's quick to jump to conclusions about the local population. They lived kind of modestly and didn't seem to him to be very motivated one day he had a conversation with a local who was sitting lazily beside his fishing boat. And with a bit of an attitude of a, a Westerner, he asked, uh, why aren't you out there hustling, man? Uh, don't you have some fishing to do? And he said, I've caught enough fish for today. Well, why don't you catch more, the rich man asked. And he, the fisherman said, well, what would I do with them? He said, well, you could earn more money, he said, with kind of a condescending uh, grin. You could buy a better boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase bigger nylon nets and catch even more fish and make more money. And soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich and successful. That's how I did it. That's how we do it where I come from. And the fisherman said, well, then what would I do? And then the businessman said, you could sit down, relax, and enjoy life. And he said, what do you think I'm doing right now? The fisherman replied as he looked out peacefully to the sea. Well, not everyone has the more, more, more bug. But certainly King Ahab, Israel's eighth king, did. And tonight we're going to see that this covetousness, this desire for more than what God had for him is going to trigger the end of his wretched life. So let's take a look at that this evening. Verses 1 through 4 will begin. Now sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. 
All right, pause there. Number one. Number one, the terrible twos. <laughs> you can put that or the big baby king or whatever you want, but uh, this guy is not acting his age at all. So um, I said this is a lesson tonight about the deadly consequences. Uh, oh, that's probably a nice looking little vineyard uh, where he is going to uh, uh, want to put a vegetable garden. We could leave that up there uh, for your imaginations. And so, as I was saying, you know, this is a lesson about the deadly consequences of coveting. But as we're going to see tonight, before the chapter's over, uh, just about every commandment will be broken at least once. And so, with that, I suggest to you that coveting is kind of like the. No. Thank you. Coveting is kind of like one of those Trojan horse sins. And what I mean by that is, you know, the mythical story about uh, the Greeks constructed this big horse and hollowed out its innards, and inside were some select uh, military fighters. And so what the Greeks did, they wanted to get into Troy, right? And so what they did is, is they took off and left the horse there. And so the people of Troy came out and grabbed that horse and put it on wheels and and wheeled it into their city. And then the door opened up and then the Greek fighters came out. And coveting is kind of like that hollowed out prize that we take into our lives. And we just think it's just this one big thing maybe or one little thing. And out comes... uh, all these little fighters and warriors. So the 10th commandment, uh, Exodus 20 and verse 17, uh, lets us know what coveting is all about. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Commandment? Number 10. And so the Hebrew word, as you can see up there, uh, command, uh, and the Greek epithumeo, uh, both of them can be used in a positive sen- uh, sense about uh, passionate desire for a good thing, but in the negative sense, and, and always when we say covet, really, well, I covet your prayers, you, you see, so... Uh, But lust generally in English, lust and covet in the New Testament is the same word in the Greek. And so I I think we all know what it means. A strong desire for forbidden things or that insatiable drive for more. Just for more. Always more. Um, Especially for for what doesn't belong to us. A constant craving. uh, A craving that prompts us to do whatever it takes to possess the object of that desire, as James, Brother James says in chapter 4, 1 and 2. It says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Oh, we're going to see that tonight. You are jealous of what others have, and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to get your way uh, and to have Uh, what you want. And so the whole bloody nightmare for uh, what begins tonight uh, over a vineyard is just so sad and pathetic. It's something that Ahab wants and it's something that Ahab cannot have. And by the way, and thank you for that slide, uh, Ahab knows full well that he can't have that piece of property uh, because it's very, it seems like a very simple transaction or an attempted little real estate deal. Uh, but the land comes to Israel through the proclamation of God himself. And God keeps calling it there. When the land is divvied up right at the beginning, Joshua uh, chapters 13 through 19, the Lord keeps calling the land the inheritance. And in Leviticus 25, we find out what the Lord wants done with that property called Israel. 
He gives it as an inheritance to the 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes are to keep the land in their family forever, never to sell their property, especially to another person from another tribe. It's an inheritance. Uh, In fact, in Leviticus 25, it says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, says the Lord, and you are but my servants and tenants on the land of Israel. So every Israelite knew it, it isn't mine to sell to you, and you know full well, King Ahab, that I'm not supposed to sell that, and that's why he says, are you you're talking about giving up the inheritance that I'm supposed to pass on and steward this to my sons? I'll never do that. Of course not, because I'm a God-fearer. You know what Ahab found? He found one of those 7,000 who haven't, hadn't yet bowed the knee to Baal. Remember, there were 7,000 uh, still God-fearing Jews left uh, that hadn't been uh, compromised. And so Ahab found uh, one of these in Naboth. And so it was pretty clear. You know, if somebody did sell their property, they went bankrupt, and in an emergency, they sold it, then the kinsman redeemer, by law, had to come and buy it back and keep it in the family. And plus, then, if it ever did get away, the land that is, There was a year of jubilee. Every 50 years, the lad would go back anyway. You see, so so it was something that everybody knew. You know, hey, you know, here's what he's saying. I'm going to make you a civilized, reasonable offer about doing something we both know is wrong. All right? Because you read it, it's like, hey, this is a nice guy. Hey, I'll give you a different vineyard, or I'll give you what it's worth. Just let me know. But every Jew who's reading it is going, oh, they... What are you talking about, you evil, wicked gang? You know, and so, so he knows full well, but he wants to make it look very reasonable. And uh, so he's going to put it out there. It wasn't Naboth's to sell. It wasn't something Ahab could have. But who cares? Ahab is king, and he's living by the golden rule. You know, the one with the gold rules. All right, you've heard that before, I'm sure. And so he's saying it's close to the palace. Imagine all the fresh produce. And he's thinking lentils and butter beans and onions and garlics and melon and all of this, maybe a little picture of what he's thinking in his mind of all the vegetables. All right, he's hungry. All right, it says in the Bible that some men are enemies of the cross, Philippians chapter 3. Their God is their belly. I mean, all, all he wants is what his eye sees. And, um, you know, Paul says that these are the guys who their, their God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I have another picture of the, the vegetable garden that he might be interested in. That's what he's thinking. Because the vineyard's pretty nice, but you know what? It's close to my house. I could, I could grow stuff, you know? It would be so convenient for me. Just give me all of this bloody nightmare starts so small. He knows it's wrong. And he's just thinking, it's just a vegetable garden. Think about that. It's just fill in the blank. All right, we'll move on. Thank you for that picture. It's making me hungry. Take it off. (laughs) So Naboth refuses. You know why? Because he's not a toddler, all right? He's a real grown-up. He's not a man ruled by his passions. Uh, Naboth fears God more than man. It doesn't matter you're the king and you're married to Jezebel and this could probably get me killed. You don't think he's thinking that? He knows what happens to people who defy the king. He goes home and tells his wife, and then the wife puts a hit out, right? That's kind of, spoiler alert, what's going to happen here. So what does Naboth say? He says, God forbid. God forbid. So like any other two-year-old, he goes home, refuses to eat, flops on the bed. It says in the Hebrew, he turns his face to the wall. He turns his face to the wall, king of Israel and sulks and refuses to eat his supper. All right. Enter Jezebel. I got a nice picture of her. All right. And just so you don't tell us 
that that's actually Cleopatra, okay? Uh, I already know that, but you know what? This works. <laughs> if that's not Jezebel, come on, that's Jezebel. All right, verses 5 through 10. His wife Jezebel, we call her Jezzy, came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said the neighbors, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. <laughs> Jezebel's wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, quote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king and take him out and stone him to death. I told you, I warned you. So we've seen the big baby, the king and his coveting heart. Now the murderous wife, the queen and her evil uh, plan. All right. We all know about the antichrist, right? Well, this this woman is the anti-wife. All right. She, Proverbs 31 says, a wife of noble character who can find. Well, you're not going to find one in that palace. Verse 12 of Proverbs 31 says, she brings her husband good, not harm, all the days of her life. But all this woman brings is harm, not good. She's just the opposite of everything that the Lord prizes in a woman. And I've said this before, and I stand by it. This marriage was made in hell, all right? If ever there was an ungodly union, it's this Syrian princess. Her dad was a king of Syria. And uh, Ahab already knew he wasn't supposed to be unequally yoked. And she's the one who deceives and, and, and stumbles Israel and terrorizes the nation. She sponsors false prophets financially. She backs all of them. She feeds them. They eat 450 of the prophets of Baal, the sorcerers in the land that corrupt the entire nation. She feeds them at her table. Well, she used to until uh, God brought judgment. And so she's probably one of the most wicked women uh, in the Bible, and we can see why, right? She's not an asset, but a liability to her husband. And I started thinking about that. You know, the whole idea of biblical marriage, you know, some spouses uh, are the ones who drag their heels uh, spiritually. They're not very helpful. Now, uh, Ecclesiastes 4 is a verse uh, from chapter 4. is a verse 9 that we often read at weddings. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. In this case, it would be better if he didn't have anybody in the home because all she does is she doesn't help him up she pushes him down. You know, see, so biblical marriage, it's the spouse's job as the one who knows the person the best and loves them the best can, can see perhaps an attitude or a hardening of the heart or a kind of a subtle change uh, or a bad attitude and, and just call them insensitivity and diplomacy and tact and gentleness and kindness uh, uh, to turn the spouse, to uplift them in a wonderful way. I mean, a godly, normal wife would have seen her husband acting like a two-year-old and probably say, like, listen, sugar muffin. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Maybe a little overreacting, Ahab, all right? Uh, a little pity party. Listen, we've got to work on contentment. I've, I struggle with the same thing, Ahab. You know, 
Let, let's pray about this tonight. You know, I'll cook your favorite meal. We'll, we'll read a couple scriptures and, you know, something like that. You know what? We could do a rooftop garden together. Oh, you know what? I, we, we've got money. So why don't we just get the best landscapers in Israel? We'll have terraces and we'll have uh, the tomatoes hanging on the vine. It'll be beautiful. Come on, what do you say? Instead, no. Is this any way for a king to act? Use your power and crush the guy. I'll show you how. I'll show you how. Quote, Spouses are the first line of defense when our hearts go astray. Who knows us better and loves us the most. So with wisdom and love and gentle prodding, the godly spouse that senses a spiritual problem with their partner goes to work to help and to restore their loved one to a more prosperous and blessed path out of harm's way. But no, cheer up, baby, leave it to me. You'll get your veggie garden. I can handle this. So Jezzy sends out uh, letters in Ahab's name to the elders with detailed instructions, a conspiracy to frame Naboth in a crime that carried the death penalty. So the elders are to call a solemn assembly. That, here's what's going on. Uh, the elders are going to say, hey, something bad has happened. We got to get to the bottom of it. Everybody just fast. We're going to come together and see if we can get to the bottom. Who's the culprit here? Something terrible has happened. Let's put an end to it. Let's all get together. So, so they get together and they make sure Nemo's front and center. And the sons of Belial in the Hebrew, it means worthless ones. Put some thugs, one on one side, one on the other, and get them to say he's cursed God and the king. And in the law, it's the death penalty. And so they do that. Drag him out of the gates and then stone him to death. Verses 11 through 16. So the elders and the nobles, and we use that term loosely here, who lived in Naboth city, did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels, sons of Belial, or sons of the devil, it means to be worthless, came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead, your highness. <laughs> 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Let's pause there. We've seen the the big baby king acting like one. Uh, The villainous wife, the queen of terror, number two, and now the noble martyr, Naboth. Well, Naboth knew what it meant to defy Ahab and take a stand for the word of God and his faith in Jehovah. He knew he might have to pay the ultimate price, but Naboth died because he took a stand. He's courageous, he's a hero. Now, in heaven, in the book of Revelation, you will find vast multitudes who are called victorious, though they have been slain because they did not take the mark of the beast. The Bible calls them victorious, Let's show you a picture of those who are victorious over the beast. Now, wait a second. <laughs> they were martyred. They, had their, they were beheaded, it says, in the end days. They will behead people like you. And they're victorious because they live forever. They will receive a martyr's crown. They will reign and rule with Christ forever and ever and ever. They are Victorious because they were tested and they came out of that fire alive (laughs) and with great honor 
and glory. And Naboth is victorious as well. He is a martyr. You know, so are you. The the Bible says that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you are my martus. You are my witnesses. But the word is martus in the Greek where we get the word martyr. And here's how that happened. Through the ages, all the witnesses were persecuted. And many of them, multitudes, had to be, were executed. So the word in English was martyr now. And it just simply means to give your life for the Lord. It's not as uh, common as you think. Just because we're in the West, you know, we don't suffer as much as people in other countries. Uh, but I, I just want to tell you, you know, we look at this and just go, wow, this is so far away, and he died for taking a stand. Listen, listen, it, it, things are heating up. And, and you know what? It, it, some of us, some Christians can't even take rejection or a loss of a friendship or a little mocking before they sell out. Oh, oh, oh uh, did I say I was a Christian? What I meant is I, I went fishing. Did you think I said Christian? No, 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 no. And I'm not a Christian all the way like you think. I'm just kind of a Christian. Oh, come on. Ahab says, sell me the property, dude. And he says, uh, you know I can't do that. I believe in the Lord. God forbid no chance in a million, sir. Yeah. Cost him his life. He's alive right now. And the others in the story are also alive. They're in two different places. And then it's been a long time to be in that place. So anyway, uh, I just say things are going to get harder. We may not be going through the tribulation as I believe. We do not go through those seven years. And I've made a case for that in many of my sermons. Uh, But just because we don't go through the tribulation doesn't mean that life is going to be peachy. All right, things are going to get hard. So we need to toughen up. Amen? Amen. So the devil's got a trifecta going here. Now, a trifecta is when apparently... uh, at the horse races, you, you, you nail first place, second place, and third place, and that's called the trifecta, all right? So the devil just took a bet with first place, second place, and third. First place, a weak-willed, wicked man, number two, a strong-willed, evil woman, and number three, a morally corrupt and compromising leaders. The trifecta, bingo, the murder of a man of God. One less man of God, one less. So there's now 6,999 who haven't bowed the knee. We'll talk about blasphemy. These three groups of people, all of them, this whole bunch, that's blasphemy, what they've done, and they will pay. And if they had not repented, they are in Hades. Hell is not open for business until the end of the age. At the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of a thousand years, there's a great white throne and every wicked person from Cain all the way through the tribulation are resurrected up out of Hades and stand before God and that all of Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Then hell is open for business. Hades now is described as a place of, and this is in my notes, I'm just talking to you, as a place of torment, it's a place of departed wicked spirits, but it's a holding place for the end of the age, where at the end of the age, the whole place is resurrected, and they stand one by one before the great white throne judgment, and the cast of characters are here. Some of them will stand before that great white throne, while Naboth is on the other side with us. And so we see, you just notice the, the elders, they go about their wicked deed, and the elders send word to whom? To Jezebel. Why? Because they know who drives the chariot in the family. <laughs> Come on. Can you do a courtesy laugh there? Just, 
All right, thank you. All right. Oh, I, I see what happened there. It was kind of coming off a pretty serious subject. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, so, uh, once she gets the word that the deed is done, she goes into the nursery where the king is sleeping. <laughs> Come on. Oh, my gosh. You guys are a hard crowd tonight. Uh, good news, baby. Literally. <laughs> I'm going to work this until I have no breath in my body. Verse 15, good news. Go and get your vineyard, my spineless wonder. Uh, Naboth, <laughs> Naboth doesn't own it on anymore because dead men don't own vineyards. Or I was thinking dead men don't tell tales. But forget about it. Uh, yeah, so when Ahab hears the news, notice he doesn't ask, well, what happened? What do you mean he's dead? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. He doesn't own the garden anymore, honey. He's dead. Thank you. He doesn't want to know. We don't want to talk about it. Do we have to talk about it? It might make us feel a little bad or dirty or something. So we're just going to just get out of bed, roll out of bed, whistle, you know, a happy tune and go out and go down and strut through his, his new piece of property. Kind of don't ask, don't tell. You know, and that's exactly what happened. She didn't tell, he didn't ask. But guess what? Their guilt remains. So the king uh, goes down to see his property, but he's going to get more than a piece of property. He's going to meet a surprise person. Verse 16 through 25. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yeah, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. Now, some parenthetical information. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Let's pause. We'll leave one little sentence there to talk about at the end. Now, uh, number four would be uh, the courageous prophet. Bold as a lion, this man. He's going to come full circle, I should say. He, uh, you'll, you'll remember he ran from Jezebel, right? And the Lord is just about ready to retire him, but his last uh, privileged a service to the Lord is to bring this judgment against both the king and the queen who's been a thorn in Israel's side, uh, a thorn in God's side, these two, and Elijah's side as well. And so Ahab's former nickname for Elijah was uh, you trouble ma- Israel's troublemaker. Remember when they met before, he said, hey, is that you, Israel's troublemaker? Well, now he's taken it a little more personally. And so now he said, hey, oh, can you imagine how 
I would be quite startled. You're walking around in the dark shadows of this new piece of property after you just heard that that guy was murdered and you're by yourself and you're creeping through the place and you turn over through one of the hedges, you turn around and there's Elijah's face right there. Whoa, the look on his face, probably not very welcoming. Wow, what a start that must have been. And so he says, oh, you found me, my enemy. And he says, I have. Now, I was noting that when a man hardens his heart and goes down the deceitful path of sinning, that that the good guys become the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys. They just can't see. They're just totally upside down. Uh, Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The good guys will tell you the hard truth. It's the enemies that tell you just what you want to hear. Is that you, my enemy? He's not an enemy. You know, what, what makes Elijah either an enemy or a friend is who you are. Who you are. He's on God's side. Ahab is not on God's side. Therefore, God's representative is a troublemaker and an enemy. But man, oh man, if you and me ran into Elijah, we'd be, Elijah, are you kidding me? Elijah, we would, we would embrace him and he us. Why? Because we're, we're on God's side, right? So yeah, gosh, the enemy... So Elijah lays it out. Ahab's sentence. You've sold your soul, man. You've done evil. Disaster's coming. Death for death. You know, he says, in the same place Naboth died, you're going to die. And by the way, your wife isn't getting away with anything either. And as disgraceful as you lived, well, that's the thing with the dogs and the birds. There's nothing worse to Jews than that. To the Jew, a burial, a decent burial is everything. They do it right away. The sun doesn't go down. I mean, boom, decent and in order, just dignified. And so God is saying, you lived in such an undignified, monstrous way, then you will also, in your death, have that kind of thing happen to you. And he says in verse 22, and by the way, your kids too, your line, this line, like two other lines, he just quoted there in verse 22, he said those two families that reigned before you that both came to an end, your family as well. So your sons as well. Now listen to what it says in Ezekiel 18. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So when he says, listen, and all your boys are going to die too, it's all your boys who follow you and are as wicked as you and who've rebelled against me as you have, they will die as well because that's how it happens. God is never going to just take out the boys because of the father's sins. And so it may sound like that, but we already know from reading the whole Bible that that isn't the case. Those boys are, are as wicked or more wicked than their father. So he's saying, the whole brood of vipers, all of you are under God's judgment. It's just a matter of time before you're asking, who let the dogs out? (laughs) Sorry. It just grows, okay? I have to lighten this up somehow. You know? Dogs licking up their blood and Wow. So crime doesn't pay. Sin doesn't pay either, which is spiritual crime. Did you know, and I'll throw this in for free, that in Japanese, the word sin and sinner is crime and criminal. It's the same word. It kind of works against evangelism there because if you say, are you a sinner, you're asking, are you a criminal? And they always say, no, I'm not a criminal. And so you have to kind of work around that. But uh, it really is a crime. It's against God. And God always gets his man or his woman. He'd prefer to be merciful, but when they reject his plan, 
he says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, speaking of Naboth now. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think about that. Just you and an angry God with no mediation. Just you and all your sins. They are laid bare in God's God's wrath. That's what's waiting for this guy. And, And Elijah tells him so. And look what happens. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, it's burlap, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I'm not going to bring the disaster in his day, but I'll bring it on his house in the days of his sons. So number five, let's talk about this merciful God, the merciful God. A little bit of a surprise ending. I'm not so, so sure that every Christian reading that is as happy or surprised as God is that this most wicked man, I mean, the Holy Spirit took some time to tell you, by the way, there's never been a wicked guy like this from the beginning. This guy's just detestable, totally evil. And yet, he turns toward God just a little bit. God seems surprised, all right? He, he says to Elijah, his man, hey, man, did you catch this? <laughs> This dude, this guy that, you know, we've been writing about for chapters and chapters and chapters. This, this dude softened up. He's going about meekly. You know, he's, he's behaving differently. He's humbled himself. He put on sackcloth, the burlap. He's laying around, crying out to me. Now, the problem is that it seems like in the next chapter, he goes back to the vomit. He goes back to idolatry. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a real uh, transformation. Is he saved? Was it enough? Nobody knows. It's one of those conversions where you're like, I I hope so. You know, don't you hate that? I hate doing funerals like that. I just say, you know, I'll talk to the Christian there. And the Christian's like, (laughs) You know, I led them in a prayer. They were in and out, and, you know, there was a tear, and we talked a little bit, and it seemed like, and all the right words, but they never did anything to show. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. That's him. That's him. God's pretty merciful. Was it saving faith? We're going to find out any second, because any second, and I do mean this from the bottom of my heart, any second, that trumpet is going to sound. We've got a world scene that lines up just with all the prophecies in the Bible. We've got Russia, Gog, doing Gog things. We've got I- Iran, which is Persia in the Bible, doing a little dance with Gog, just like they're supposed to be doing. Any second, it's, it's going to be a normal day. Two guys are going to be working at the work site. One goes, one stays. Two ladies are going to be in the kitchen talking about their latest recipe. Boom, one goes, one stays. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, boom. And then we'll know, hey, by the way, is Ahab here? Well, yeah, we'll find out. We'll know as we're fully known. So there's no indication that there's a, a real change, but God says, I'm going to give him a stay of execution three years, but he dies still in judgment with that random arrow that finds its way. And and so you don't really see a change, but why does God give him three years and say, hey, take a look at this? Because he says it's a beginning. It's something. I'm going to work with this. I'm going to give him a, a few years with the hopes that the that he'll, he'll change and it'll go deep. God... Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. 
He says, as surely as I live, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their sins and live. Why will you die, he says, but turn and live, live, live. You see, that's what's happening there. So three years go by. Uh, It doesn't seem to have happened, but we'll know when we're there. Now, in conclusion, I just want to say uh, in reflection, um, I'm a little, a little bothered and disturbed in my own heart about how this whole bloody disaster happened uh, just with just such a small little start of a nothing thing. So I, I want to tell you about a forest fire. <laughs> 2007, 500,000 acres. It stretched from Santa Barbara to Mexico. But it started with a cigarette butt. Just in my hand, just this, that's all. And, And all this guy, this whole thing started with, boy, that sure make me a nice vegetable garden. And if you told it to somebody... Uh, they would say, you know, you're not supposed to have a vegetable garden. You know, he can't sell you the land. Not a big, huge thing, but get over it. You know that would be wrong. So it just starts with, with nothing. Even you would never know that from the vegetable garden, it, it grows all the way into this monstrous massacre thing where it precipitates the end of lives and and bloody judgment. And it just started with nothing. And I just think about a guy in the office and just a look, just a look, and then a second look. Or just one little Facebook thing, one little Facebook. Hey, hey, I found your Facebook. Hey, it's been a long time. What you been up to? You married? Just... Nothing. It was a nothing. And there's a divorce and their kids crying and their kids visiting their father and a kid on drugs because he couldn't handle it. And it all what? It was a bloop. A bloop on a Facebook nothing. It was just a crane of the head just twice. A click, one click. You didn't go looking for it. It popped up and you clicked. Just, just one little click. That's what I took away. You know, usually uh, that Ze- Zechariah chapter four, verse ten, it says, "Don't despise the day of small beginnings." And we use that because this is in the context of Israel coming back to after exile and seeing the work that had to be done to rebuild the temple and the wall. And the Lord said, "Hey, don't despise the day of small beginnings. I mean, I'm going to do this thing, but." What spoke to me was don't despise the day of small sinnings. Don't don't do that. It's just a garden. Oh, it's just every guy struggles with this. Every guy? Be careful. It's deadly. So just let the Holy Spirit just do a little sweep of all the little areas, the weaknesses that are in your life that just seemed like it's just a little lie, a little envy. Yeah, so I've got a little problem struggling with people or uh, being jealous or I fly off the handle or, you know, maybe I drink a little bit too much or, you know, it's just a little thing. Just be careful. Because it started in a little cigarette butt in a little vegetable garden. Turned out to be a disaster. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. We ask now that you continue to just speak to our hearts, Lord. We love the fear of the Lord because <laughs> it just is the key. It keeps us from sinning and doing stupid things. <laughs> so press it again upon our hearts, Lord, to walk with you with the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the closing song. The, the thing that really encouraged me after I studied was the best news of all. If God can be moved by this wicked, 
wicked man and his little weak sauce repentance. All right, sorry. <laughs> I didn't even realize I said that. <laughs> his little weak effort, right? Just a little bit. Oh, I'm going to change into burlap and I'm going to cry a little bit. And God said, did you, did you see that? Wow. Because he did that, I'm going to buy, he's going to get more time. He gave me a little itch. I'm going to give him a couple thousand miles. If that's how God feels about wicked, wicked Ahab, who has no covenant with God, how about us who are in Christ Jesus, who have the blood of God's Son applied to our souls, when we kind of get a little bit wandering out here as we are prone to do, we're out of fellowship or we go down the wrong path, how much more quickly, how much more will our Heavenly Father now under the new covenant, (laughs) we're in His Son for crying out loud. He's going to respond. He's going to respond a hundred times what He did for wicked king, yucky Ahab. Who's married to Jezebel. Yikes. And by the way, there's no reprieve for her. So wait till you see what happens to her. It's nasty. All caps, nasty. The Lord. Listen, the next time you're like, Father God, I know this is a thousand times you've heard this from me. He goes, I'm here. Let's do this. Let's restore you. Let's do it again. That's what I see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for that just timeless forgiveness and that unfathomable mercy and that unfailing love that you show us. Lord, we're in Christ. We've been forgiven by the blood of the Most High God applied to our hearts and lives. Oh, Lord Jesus, we just know we're safe and we're secure in you. Thank you for that great love. Help us to live worthy of it, to walk in worthy ways, to lay down things and just let our lives be a sacrifice to you, we pray, and and guard us, God, and never let us look again at, at a little sin the same way, but just to die to those things before they get started. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Well, God bless you. We'll see you Sunday morning. There's prayer at the cross. Don't forget always. God bless you. You have been listening to Calvary Chapel, The Rocks podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in San Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.